Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on what time you are listening to this uh, podcast. I am here with uh, Dr. Tim Dodsworth and Mrs. Maggie Hemsworth from Exeter University and we are doing uh, a podcast uh, unpacking contract law and the case we are looking at today is Wells and Devani and I am uh, Dr. Severin Satie. Wells and Devaney, the quick facts, uh, or the facts quickly, uh, Mr. Wells was a property developer who had trouble selling uh, flats he had just completed, and he was given the details of uh, Mr. Devaney, who was uh, an estate agent. Um, Wells contacted uh, Devaney over the phone, and during that phone conversation, uh, Devaney told Wells that uh, his commission uh, for him to introduce and uh, eventually find somebody to buy uh, the flats would be 2%. But at no point did uh, Devani specify what would trigger the obligation for Mr. Wales to pay the commission. The flats were sold and Devani claimed that uh, claimed his commission, but Wales refused to pay. And so Devani issued proceedings. At first instance, the um, court uh, decided that uh, Devani indeed had a right to receive the commission. There was a valid and binding contract which was created orally. And even though um, uh, an essential term, i.e. the trigger event upon which um, the obligation to pay the commission um, arose, was not defined, nevertheless, there was a a clear and uh, completed contract. The Court of Appeal uh, reversed this and said there was no contract. Uh, It was an incomplete agreement, uh, which was not enforceable uh, if an essential term was missing. The event triggering the obligation to pay was clearly essential, and so therefore there was no valid contract. Uh, Leave to appeal to the Supreme Court uh, was granted. And three questions uh, were raised, uh, were asked uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, The first one, was the oral contract uh, complete and enforceable, even though the event triggering the obligation to pay the commission was not expressly identified? Second, was it necessary to imply a term specifying the trigger event? The last point was uh, whether there was a breach by Mr. Devani of the uh, estate agent uh, 1979, which we will not go into details. So here we are, uh, Supreme Court uh, decision. Um, To me, the, the question is, did it need to go to the Supreme Court? Over to you, uh, Maggie and uh, Tim. Well, I would say not not obvious. Yes. Um, 
you've got uh, quite distinguished judges in the Court of Appeal, in particular Lord Justice Lewison, who's uh, so well known for anything to do with contract interpretation. He's, he's written basically the Bible on that subject. Uh, and that's really homage is done to him, if you like, in the Supreme Court, quite careful to uh, pay respects to him. Uh, he is a, a very well-known figure. Um, so if you've got uh, a, a, a contractual setting that might have wide public interest and relevance to many people, um, particularly estate agents and buying and selling transactions of land are so commonplace now, I think that in itself would probably have enabled uh, the Supreme Court uh, to uh, grant permission to go to them on the, these particular points. It is of general public interest uh, and therefore uh, you've obviously got some doubt if you've got doubt at the Court of Appeal level with a very distinguished judge um, or judges as you had in that case. So I, I would say that this is law in action. I would say uh, well done English and Welsh system. Our system of justice actually it was working very well in that instance. I agree that there's some clarification in there, and I think the fact that we do have the Estate Agent Act, which I know we're not going to cover today in there, does mean that potentially the, the common law aspect did, needed, did need to be clear in, the, in this instance. Um, did it need to go to the Supreme Court? I, I really don't think so. Um, I must admit, I'm going to disagree with you on that one, Maggie. I, I think the point of law that we're trying to address here is is really not that difficult to grapple with. Uh, granted, I think they do go around a little bit in terms of implied term. Should it be an implied term or, or, or should it be uh, sorted in, in the sense of um, interpretation? So that's that's really where I stand on this. I, I would agree with you, Severine. I, I don't think it, it should have possibly gone all the way up to the Supreme Court on the point of well, law. Can I just argue the toss on that? Oh, um, it was Please. left in the Court of Appeal such that the estate agent had no claim and that if the law had been left in that position, that is potentially a, a difficult situation because there might be other transactions of this nature where the estate agent has been the effective cause of the sale, which is the language of the legislation, and would not have any remedy at all. So um, do we think that that would be appropriate, given that the estate agent had found the buyer, the uh, purchase had been completed and yet he had no claim at all zero and unjust enrichment although that's not really my my area i don't think that would have uh, given any remedy so you would have a situ no i don't think unjust unjust enrichment would have no, helped so you, are, you would be left in um, a situation where if this is repeated again uh, no remedy at all to the estate agent. So um, it, it perhaps would be un unsatisfactory, I would say, or at least an arguable point to justify going to the Supreme Court. I mean, I, I agree thus far to the extent that the context of this 
is, I think, particularly important. And so I doubt myself whether it can be extrapolated, if you like, into many other walks of life. So to that extent, it is quite a narrow uh, decision, in a sense, because you've got two sophisticated parties. I mean, um, the, the seller was a developer, and, and, and so he must have dealt with estate agents and buying and selling and, and how this is done uh, um, many times before. So it's not uh, like you or I perhaps doing a, a sale once in a lifetime sort of instance. These were both sophisticated entities, and, and so I think that background is particularly important. And the Estate Agents Act, although we're not going to discuss that, I think that's also particularly important because it gives the estate agent the right to commission whatever it has been agreed at uh, if he or she is the effective cause of the sale. And so, you know, that is a significant uh, background part of law. So the, the factual matrix, I think, also includes the legal matrix, uh, certainly where the parties are, are taken to be aware of that. And I think these sophisticated parties, as I say, would have been aware of that. I, so I, the reason why I ask, why on earth did it reach the, did it need to reach the Supreme Court? Because I agree with you that the, the, the correct decision, you know, was reached. But so you, it's interestingly, you both talk about clarification. And yet, uh, as it has been uh, written by academic, there is nevertheless a confusion between the related and yet distinct um, doctrines of interpretation on the one hand and then implied terms and also, you know, so can you untangle some of that? Because did the court, you know, how can the court imply a term or can they imply a term for the purpose of creating a contract? So all these are not entirely clear. Well, that's the isn't it that that is the far more interesting uh, point i suppose uh, and and the difference here is um if i think if you look at the supreme court the way they approached it i would i would call that truly hoffmanian uh, if that is a word um, paying homage to Lord Hoffman, uh, and those of us who are paid up members of his fan club, uh, would be applauding that approach. And I certainly am a paid up member of Lord Hoffman's fan club. Um, I think he would he would be saying, you know, uh, what's what's the problem with this? This is uh, an obviously correct decision um, because he would be placing quite a lot of emphasis on the context and quite a lot of emphasis on, you know, he uses the term speaker meaning as opposed to word meaning, which is a sort of related idea here. Uh, the inference, what was obvious to them, not in an implied term sense and the way that we use this obviousness test, not in that sense at all, but what was a, that, an yeah. inference as to their actual intent? So there's the real difference between the finding here. The finding here is an actual intent, although not articulated. Wholly oral contract anyway, so you wouldn't have anything written down. Fine. You didn't have anything actually orally expressed as we are expressing it now. Nevertheless, the parties, given, as I keep saying, their sophisticated nature, they were both working on that assumption that the commission would be payable 2% on completion. But nobody actually had to say those words because 
they both knew it and both accepted it as so. So that finding is an inference of actual behavior, actual agreement. Whereas implied term, there is no actual agreement. It's a different process. It is saying if they had thought about it, the answer would have definitely been this. And that is, I suppose, subtly different. And a pedant might say, you know, you, you end up in the same end result. So why, why are we laboring this? And perhaps Lord Hoffman would say that, as he said about the Supreme Court uh, more recently. You know, he, he said extrajudicially, I think in 2018, uh, um, sometimes the Supreme Court currently makes heavy weather of things <laughs> you know they're sort of laboring things that you know in his great expertise and, and uh, uh, brain capacity he would see as as blindingly obvious and i think wells and devani falls arguably into lord hoffman's blindingly obviously correct <laughs> um outcome as it were but um not by an implied term I would say. Uh, yes, I'd, I'd agree with that. I have a difficulty with the implied term idea. One is that, of course, if we're doing it via necessity, for example, then the, the inference is that we need to imply this term to give, give it business efficacy, which means, of course, that there is a certain amount of business efficacy lasting, uh, lacking, which means we can't then start implying that. That's the whole purpose of the contract in the first place. That would be my first one. So if anything, I think we'd need to go via the officious bystander test. And that's the only one that would, would, in my mind, at least work. And I think, Maggie, you were, you were hinting towards that in, in what you were saying. So I think we need to be careful with the implied term. And, and I must admit, I don't think there's any need for that. I think we can we can find it through through interpretation or even construction of the agreement quite easily. I mean, the the only danger area, to my mind, of the implied term argument, um, it was the problem that Lord Lewison came across, because uh, the evidence uh, was apparently I, I I don't know, and there's not a lot of detail about it. I think in the, in the judgments, but there was some evidence that actually in the market uh, there are different trigger moments for the payment of the estate agents commission i mean you and i if we only did one sale in our lifetime our, our family home or, or whatever probably wouldn't uh, appreciate that that might be so uh, but apparently it is so perhaps the commission might be payable at, at exchange or, or some other uh, point in finding an interested party whether or not they actually complete the thing um, so i think that might have made it more difficult for the implied term argument and I think that was the problem that Lord Justice Lewison had in his mind for implied term. Yeah I mean so the one the, the one potential problem that I have is so Lord Kitchen you know in the Supreme Court did disagree uh, with uh, Lord Justice Lewison and even though you two do not really have a problem uh, with a the decision there is one point that Lord Kitchen comes close when he says at paragraph uh, 33 it seems to me that it is possible to imply something 
that is so obvious that it goes without saying. And he says that uh, I do not accept that there is any general rule that it is not possible to imply a term into an agreement to render it sufficiently certain yes. or to complete. Uh, yes, why, why is that a problem? A why is that contentious? So does he not come here close to why is that, why is mixing that what he says the there? Two? Why is that contentious or a problem? Because because how can you imply a term, playing devil's advocate, mm-hmm. in order to create a contract that comes dangerously close to uh, mixing the uh, interpretation and implication and formation. They are different um, areas. Again, I would say Lord Hoffman would say, no, that is an artificial distinction. When you're talking about an implied term, you are not creating any contract. The parties have created their own contract. All the court is doing is, if you like, dotting the I's and crossing the T's of what was bound to have been in the the deal. So this business efficacy idea is is sort of a phrase to try and grapple with that, isn't it, really? And the official, uh, officious bystander is just another way of expressing the same thing. Um, I think if you look at the Phillips Electronic case, um, where Lord Bingham is trying to explain to us uh, when it is possible to imply a term and when it is not, he's saying it's it's not good enough to say that had they thought of it, they would have made some provision. That's not good enough because that would be doing what you're worried about, Severine, which is creating a contract. And English law never does that. So he says you've got to go further than that. You've got to be able to say not only would they have made a provision, but you need as a court to be able to see, that's identify, not create, what that provision would have been. So if it's not sufficiently clear or not sufficiently narrowed down to a single one thing, then you're in difficulties with the implied term. And so that's why I I have this slight wobble or unease about implied term in Wells and Devaney, simply because there was some evidence um, that commission might have been payable at different points other than completion. And so that's why to my mind, is a little bit wobbly on that one. So I'm not entirely, I'm I'm not surprised at all, therefore, that that was rather a sort of secondary thought offered by the Supreme Court, Lord Kitchen. That's not really the the main reasoning. Yeah. Uh, And I I personally, I can't see any problem with putting an implied term in to uh, complete what is written down, if you like, in a contract, but you're, you're still not creating the contract. You're not creating the term. You're simply articulating what term and only what term and only the content that the parties would themselves have articulated. The line is very close. I mean, as I said, it perhaps it's also interesting, uh, something that I haven't mentioned in the fact, uh, the, the, the Supreme Court um, prefer, so all, all the way through when the uh, Devani and Mr. Wells were uh, making their, um, they were explaining what happened, uh, it is perhaps important to point out that the courts did not want to accept um, uh, Wells' uh, 
expression of you know what was what was recalled, what really happened. So they completely disregarded this, and there seemed to be uh, some inference that he, after having sold you know seven flats, he suddenly realized he had an awful lot of money to pay, and you know perhaps was not the uh, nicest of persons. So what you know that that, that is you know well yes I, the the, uh, the evidence is not in his favor. <laughs> in is not in his favor. So you know Devani and Esitagen, you know Esitagen's always get the brunt of people, but in this particular case, you know he was the honest uh, person out of the two people. So I don't have a problem with the decision. It's just uh, we always say that you know things come in chronological order. Um, and therefore, you know, the implication of, of, of term in order to create a contract, even though I'd, admittedly, you know, that's not necessarily the first time it's been done. Uh, it's just sometimes make it difficult. The, 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 the court, the Supreme Court, you know, recently in Ireland and Britain, you know, went into some length to really make the distinction with uh, implied terms. And but, interpretation. Oh, but in Ireland and Britain, and, though, Severine, that, you know, that's really come... about interpretation rather than implication. Sorry. Yeah. No, but the the, 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 the process that they are two distinct process, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court went into some lengths to, um, you know, make the two notion separate and perhaps here they are anyway that's you know we uh, well that's the point for example Lord Hoffman would say uh, you're making heavy weather <laughs> on, on those very uh, pedantic <laughs> distinctions all you're all you're trying to do is work out is there a deal and what is the yeah. deal so taking a pragmatic decision um, can I can, can we move on perhaps from this um, and uh, another another interesting thing or you know a, a fact uh, of, of of the case that perhaps we're going to uh, discuss and disagree on is can so the words were not expressly spoken in the and yet the court considered that nevertheless the uh, phone conversation was such that they clearly uh, meant it uh, on the that the trigger uh, was uh, the um, sale and the completion of the sale. So uh, I think it's uh, uh, Professor Paul Davies who said, can you, you know, raise the issue that you can't really interpret silence? Can that be wrong? Well, there, there I, I, I quite like Lord Briggs' argument, actually, on that point, where he talks about the broom and someone rings at the doorbell and you hand over the broom. I, that is quite a compelling argument. Uh, and I think absolutely, I think a certain amount of silence in a contract. And I think this is where, on, on other points, the, the, the Supreme Court might have got it wrong. We can have a look at... Um, um, M&S and BMP uh, Paribas, I think, um, would be one of those those examples. Uh, silence, once once the parties are communicating, as long as it's not acceptance, and again, you, you, you could, by previous expression, get around that. Um, I think silence in itself tends to have a meaning. Um, even when we're communicating, you know, so long as we have that communication, and by communication it would probably mean as long as we're in, in contractual negotiations, your silence could certainly mean something. If I were to make a, a particularly heavy argument here and both of you were silent on that point, I think that would be saying more than, than necessarily saying oh, something. No, it might just be, it might just be politeness. Well, that says the same thing. <laughs> 
which we know is uncharacteristic, nevertheless. <laughs> At least in this circle. I, I think it's back to the context again. The context of sophisticated uh, owner of property, developer, not just a, sing a single owner, as it were, and uh, a, an agent. Uh, it's, it's a question of inference rather than what's made explicit. So I wouldn't even describe that as silence i would say it's it's heavy in the conversation although not spoken um and and the broom examples of lord briggs i think he should have um, made explicit homage to lord hoffman i'm, go I'm going to well in again on in favor of lord hoffman because he has written extrajudicially uh, 2018 I think it was when he was talking about speaker meaning and he gives two examples of um, he can get tickets for a rugby match and so uh, a friend of his uh, says to him oh can you get me one and uh, the natural inference is that not that it's a gift uh, that, that, that he'll be paid for it reimbursed for it uh, and another one he gives um, oh I've got tickets to see Andra Schiff uh, playing in the uh, Barbican or somewhere um, I can give you a lift if you like um, and the inference is that you would actually also take him home again, not leave him in the Barbican. <laughs> now, you might say, that. well, that's silence. Nobody said that. But the natural inference in that particular setting is that, yes, you'd pay for the wretched rugby ticket. And yes, you'd actually take him home and not abandon him at midnight. Well, presumably, the though, there is a difference there between between silence being an inference generally and, and, and silence then having contractual force. So I think we do need to be a little bit careful on the distinction. Generally, think... silence is uh, equivocal, isn't it? We all, we all know that. Yeah. But that's why I keep banging on about the context here and the background and these particular parties. Silence, if you like, was pregnant. If not pregnant, then heavy. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 Maybe with meaning. Yes. Oh, although we're saying silence, I mean there wasn't there wasn't outright silence between the parties. No. It, it, it may still have been been said, although not in those words, as uh, one might say. One might argue. Well, I suppose that that is the practical problem that courts have, or advocates have, and certainly the solicitors would have, trying to draw up witness statements. Um, this is on recollection of oral conversations over the telephone probably months ago when um, one guy wants to avoid having to pay anything and the other guy wants his full cut. So, you know, who are you going to believe? And it's a question of uh, memories fading naturally, innocently, and then coloured, obviously, by their own self-interest. So, uh, you know, that's a pr particular practical problem. Well, I think there's many, many uh, practical and, and problems. I mean, one of the big questions I'm asking myself is, why on earth didn't he send this earlier? But that's, I think, uh, we may have to... Um, that's something that we... I mean, clearly, I think a state agent know that they need to send this stuff. Did he just forget? Yes, I think, I think so. So that, that probably, probably. Um, this is really about a, a mistake, if you like, in, in a loose sense uh, in the estate agent's admin side and and had he played it exactly by the letter uh, with what's required with the state agents act uh, you wouldn't have been in the supreme court arguing about is this inference is this explicit is this an implied term is this interpretation we, we wouldn't have gone down that 
sorry road. <laughs> and on that, really, I'm wondering, it, what, what is this basis then for the interpretation? What, what are we saying is coming? So the, the, the issue is, is when, when is this consideration due? Right. So what, what, are we, what are we saying? What are we actually interpreting here? The fact that they had not expressly voiced the uh, fact that the trigger was on completion of the sales. That's what it is all about. And the way the court said that you can. So on, on this, I agree with you, Maggie, that the uh, silent... So the court kitchen linked it all back to... So in order to decide this, linked it all back to the um, uh, intention. It was absolutely clear, as you both have said, that, of course, there was a, a commission which had to be paid. Uh, and, and the court went into quite a lot of details about the way uh, when there is a sale or the, the conversation which is being done between a client uh, and an Agent, find me a house. All these things. So you know, these collo- colloquialism, is that a word? Yeah. Um, so therefore, you know, that's why on this aspect, the, the the context is important, and therefore the 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 silence indeed was pregnant uh, with meaning. But the court heavily relied on you know. So again, the context in order to decide whether there was. And, a- and you know, you talk about at, at- so quite the the statement is is then uh, pay me. To pay me two percent. Yeah, that was that, and the addition would then be upon yes, completion. That, that, that was the that was the only thing that missing. Yes. you know, because it's upon completion, and so therefore it is it it is deducted from uh, the price that was reached, or that was the price that was paid by the person who bought. So it's it's just a question of what what's implicit. Yeah, and, and you were talking earlier about the um, uh, Ashley and and Blewett problem. You know, this is a, a million miles from that. We should add that was in a in the discussion before before we started recording. Well, just 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 to refer to that case, Ashley and Blewett. Uh, um, it's a I would say it's a million miles from that. Yeah. Um, these were arm's length transaction, as it were, dealings. Um, the parties weren't known to one another previously. Um, it was obviously a, a commercial discussion, uh, not in a pub, although, of course, uh, where you're having the discussion is not necessarily significant. Um, but it was heavy with serious commercial and legal uh, intention. Yes. So in terms, in terms of formation or finality, I suppose one should say, the finality and formation of, of the agreement, I, I don't think that that was a particular problem, as long as you think the law is such that uh, you can um, uh, add an implied term in order to show its complete form, as it were. And that's where we were arguing earlier. Is it appropriate to use an implied term in order to fill that gap? in that situation and and I would say, well, I, I don't see what what's the problem with that. Yeah, well, we won't we we won't go back into it. <laughs> go back over that. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I th- I Are th- we agreeing to disagree then on that? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I, yeah, I think on the uh, on the point of you know, indeed, it, it it's not at all like uh, Blue and Ashley, um, and indeed the court, you know, went to or Kitchen, you know, uh, for the majority went to some length to say 
say that here there was the reason why it was so the, the, this was not a problem that the express the, the trigger was not mentioned was because on the in, so looking again at the context it was absolutely clear that uh, commission would be payable uh, that something you know that it was a transaction uh, he had uh, contacted the estate agent for the purpose of finding uh, a client finding something and as the court also went to some length uh, to say there was performance of the you know it was performed so the court uh, Lord Kitchen reiterated the very well known uh, fact that the courts are loath to unmake uh, contract and so here the importance of performance was also important to establish that there clearly was uh, an intention so all those uh, are crucial for the decision. I'll tell you one other interesting thing. Um, if, if you look at that's a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court, and look, it includes Lord Sumption. Yes. Who 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 was well? In fairness to him, I would say he's 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 normally uh, much stricter mm-hmm. about language and express terms. And um, I suppose the other end of the spectrum, possibly from Lord Hoffman in terms of giving a lot of weight to the context and the background. He's, he, he leans, I would say, towards texture, textualism rather than contextualism, I think, um, just inherently naturally. Uh, that's not meaning any disrespect. That's just, you know, the, the way each judge would naturally a- approach things. And yet he had no difficulty in, in agreeing with uh, Lord Kitchen's analysis and conclusions. I think that's quite significant then. Yes, I, I've I've always I I do agree. The assumption is is a quite the market individualist. Certainty being one of the overriding um, factors for him, and I think him agreeing with this case probably says something about how we started. You know, it possibly is questionable how this got to the Supreme Court. Although I think we have found good reasons. Yes. Um, the I think that one of the main aspects here is is also the the Estate Agent Act. The fact that the Act makes puts so much emphasis on the fact that we do need the certainty for the agreement to come into existence um, probably weighed on their mind at the same time. Yes. Well, I suppose that the, the, the real thrust or purpose of the Estate Agent Act is to protect um, Joe Public Consumer uh, who uh, needs uh, the certainty and the formalities uh, that the Act uh, requires of, of the professional there because there is a natural imbalance in their knowledge and their experience of these sorts of transactions. Um, and I, I come back to the context again. I, I don't think that uh, Mr. Wells and Mr. Devani needed uh, that close care, if you like, of, of the law. They, they were able to look out for themselves. It's just that the estate agent made a mess of his paperwork. I don't think we quite nailed it on the head what, what the interpretation is, because the interpretation, as far as I understand it, is, is coming out of the silence. And I think, I think we may need to... Well, I just think it's a, a, a pedantic... Lord Newberger, I say, a sterile argument. Um, you, you could equally call that construction, because it is taking into account the context and the background and and the inference between the parties. So I don't think it matters. I, I would argue that it is closer to construction, actually. Yes. Yeah. Less, less so interpretation. 
Yeah. So I don't think it, but I don't really think it matters what word you use. But I think if you're being pedantic, I'd probably call this construction rather than interpretation. I am indeed being pedantic. And here you are, the two of you telling me yesterday in the thing that construction and interpretation are not the same. But what no, 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 that's only it's Maggie. Maggie. I'd like to say this is Maggie. It's to you, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you end up the same thing. And yet yesterday, no, 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 Severine, they are different. Well, they yeah. are. They are, they are different things, but I think I did say No victories given that easily. argument. I, I, I will agree it is a pedantic point, but... Oh, so so, yes, if I'm going to go down in history, then it is going to be on the basis of being pedantic, I think. That's fine. I'm um, happy with that. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> um, we're talking about what we're trying to fill in, and I think that's a point that uh, Pilkington and Eldridge make, is is what is the... Um, at the formation said, what, what are we lacking? And they and they make four points, I think. They say it could be a lack of finality, it could be a lack, an incompleteness, it could be the vagueness, or it could be the illusory con- consideration. And and they conclude that this has to fall in the incompleteness category. Yeah, but I, I, I don't know that it gets you anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but we kind of like agree on that, don't we? <sighs> Uh, well, no, I mean, I don't know. There's some points of differences along the way, but we agree at the outcome. Great. We? we actually agree on, you know. Um... Well, good for us, bad for the podcast. Um... <laughs> ah, you want to fight, do you? <laughs> fight, fight, fight. <laughs> oh, dear. I can remember Lewison when he was a young barrister. He won't remember me. I was a trainee article clerk. And he was specialist landlord and tenant, young barrister, on the fast track upwards in the early 80s. Um, one, one other point I thought we could address would be um, Lady Arden's idea of there being a unilateral contract, which then turns into a bilateral contract, which isn't picked <laughs> up, I don't think, at the Supreme Court stage at all. Um, I don't know whether we want to. No, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't understand where she's going with that. It's a pity okay. that's a lockdown, isn't it, Severin? It's a pity there's a lockdown because you really think Tim needs to get out more. Yes. Oh dear! <laughs> I don't think the lockdown. The, I don't think the lockdown in any kind of way. <laughs> I think I needed to get out before then. Okay, because I think we need to wrap this up. Okay. Um, so to conclude and to end, what do we think? A bad, a good, an ugly decision? The right decision, I think, overall, possibly not the most elegant in terms of doctrinal coherence or progress through the courts, I'd say. Um, but generally, I think I, I agree with the outcome and I'm, I'm quite happy with where that stands. Uh, well, I, I agree. Right outcome, right reasoning, at least on inference. I suppose for people writing textbooks or teaching the subject, uh, do we need another summary of the differences between uh, what's implicit inference and what's implied? Um, I suppose that would be doing us out of a job, really. You know, there is the judgment. We should make of it what we will. 
and pass it on to those interested. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a useful judgment and I applaud it. Okay, and uh, I would agree with pretty much what you have both said. I'll uh, conclude by using the words of uh, Dr. Yap in his article. It's a pragmatic decision that hides a lot of things, this word, pragmatic. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, bye.